Father, we thank you. At this time of year, as we take extra time to stop and think about Jesus, we thank you for your plan to save us. And Jesus, we thank you for coming. May we now learn even more about who Jesus is as we look at this psalm, and may we learn how we're supposed to live accordingly. God, open our hearts and our minds. Fill us with the Holy Spirit, we pray, that we might understand what you have freely given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pop quiz, first of all, here. Uh, I should have had a candy bar to give away for this one, but does anybody know which Old Testament passage is most quoted in the New Testament? Anybody? I'll give you a hint. It's in your bulletin today. Uh, <laughs> it's the sermon we're going to look at today. Psalm 110. Would have you known that? Um, there's a couple of, verse 1 and verse 4 are, are often quoted. Psalm 10, 110 is quoted or alluded to in 12 books of the New Testament. And as I said, more than any other Old Testament passage, this one. Now, we might look at it and say, oh, it just looks kind of normal. But really, it, it's an important psalm. Why is it so important? Well, I, I hope to explain that to you over the coming minutes here. We're going to take a look at this psalm from two different angles. And allow me to use an illustration here. I, I've been thinking a lot about buildings lately and been interacting with architects and engineers and things like that. An interior designer and an electrical engineer could both step foot into the same building at the same time. They could even walk in together and look at the same building and view it in two totally different ways. You know, the, the interior designer might be saying, oh, imagine what we could do with this space or the, the color scheme that could go right here. And the electrical engineer might be looking at the lights and the conduit and saying, how can we get the wiring to work over here? Now, they're working on the same project, but they have a different perspective on it. And, and they might do their work very separately for a while. But at the end, the, there's going to have to be only one plan. And they, they can't be fighting against each other on this plan. So they're going to have to come together eventually and figure out how to get it together. Well, that's kind of what I want to do today with Psalm 110. I want to look at it from two different angles. And then in my conclusion, I'm going to try to merge them into one. First, we're going to look at this psalm as a psalm of worship. And in that sense, we're just continuing our psalm series that we've been doing for the last four weeks here. And again, the reason that we do this, these psalm series every year is because it's good for our souls to remind ourselves to worship God, that we were created to honor and glorify God. And if we don't do that, we actually miss out on a significant part of our life's purpose. So for me personally, I keep going back to the Psalms. I, I don't know if you know this, but every Sunday morning before I go to church, I, I open up my Bible and I read the Psalms. And it's just a reminder to me that God is worthy to be praised. And, and the reason I keep coming back to the Psalms year after year in this sermon series is the same thing, that we need to be reminded to thank God and to praise Him for who He is. So the, the first way we're going to look at Psalm 110 today is as a psalm, as a psalm of worship. The second way, then, that we're going to look at this Psalm 110 is to look at it as a prophecy about the coming king. There, there's some pretty important verses here that speak about the coming king. And it, from that perspective, then, this is going to be the first in my Christmas sermon series. You see what we're doing today? We're transitioning from the Psalm series into the Christmas series. And, and the second part of my psalm today will feel more like a Christmas sermon than maybe a sermon from a psalm. This psalm is about, it's a, it's a prophecy about a coming king. And just to give you a little refresher on the timeline of it, it was written by King David, so we're looking at about 1,000 B.C. then. So you think about David reigning as king of Israel about 1,000 years before Christ came. 
and he's writing about a king taking the throne. Now, we, from the perspective of 2012, we can look back and know that Jesus has already come. That part of this prophecy of Psalm 110 has already been fulfilled. But as I'll, t- I'll show you later, part of Psalm 110 actually looks ahead to the second coming of Christ as well. So Psalm 110 still stands as prophecy for us, even though part of it has to do with what's already been fulfilled. Okay, so those are the two different ways we're going to look at this psalm. Let's now read Psalm 110. I'll read it for you, and it's in your bulletins as well. Of David, a psalm. And remember, that, that little part of it, that, that subtitle there, it's, it's scripture. So that, and it's, in this particular one, it's really important to know that David wrote this, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Verse 1 then says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. You see how it's a king there? Verse 3, Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. Or I like the alternate translation at the end of verse 3 there. Your young men will come to you like the dew. Talking about the abundance of, of people who will be willing to follow this king. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay, so as I said, the first way that we're going to look at this psalm is as a psalm of worship. And point number one there in your bulletins, if you're following along, is a psalm of worship. We can rejoice in God's promises. We can rejoice in God's promises. One of the ways that I view this psalm is as a reminder for us to, to remind ourselves that God is faithful. We go through a lot of stuff in life. Can, can I get an amen to that from anybody? We go through stuff. You know, we, we have this mindset. I hope every one of us in this room has this mindset that I want to keep my eyes on Christ. I want to follow God for my whole life. Now, even as good as intentions as we might have in saying that, sometimes stuff comes up in life and we lose our perspective. That in our heart of hearts, we would say, I want to follow Christ, but sometimes our, our focus gets off of Him and onto the, either ourselves or to the things that are going on. And as I've been saying for the last couple weeks, that one of the best correctives for that is to praise God. So one of the ways I want you to view Psalm 110 is God's going to tell us some stuff about the future and we can take that to the bank and we can praise Him. It's going to talk about a battle, and it's going to talk about God winning the battle, and we can know that God is worthy to be praised. So the more we look at God and and who He is, the more we praise Him. (coughs) Apologize, I'm finishing up a cold this week, so... So we want to keep our focus on God, and... Any little thing that we can do to remind ourselves to keep our focus on God is a good thing. Let me use an illustration here. Um, Christine has twin sisters who are in college at NDSU, and their job at NDSU is to work at the climbing wall. So they have really gotten into climbing, and they're the ones who do the, the bowling, and they, they, they literally roped me into going. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for getting that one. Um, <laughs> They've been asking my brother-in-law and I to go with them rock climbing for a while. And finally, over Thanksgiving break, it worked out so that we could go. And I think this is only the second time in my life that I've ever been rock climbing. And it was a little embarrassing because my 
twin sisters-in-law are really good at this, and here's me just, you know, struggling to do the beginner routes on there. But uh, I learned something very quickly about rock climbing. <coughs> you want to have a good foothold and good grips for your hands. I mean, as, for me, as I'm going up that wall, I'm thinking, where can I go next? And boy, some of those grips are just tiny. You like, have to just really wedge your fingers in to get them. But some of them are nice and big and round. Like, oh, yes, I can hold on to this one. And the same thing with your feet. And, and for me, I'm just looking for those footholds as I go up. Well, one of the ways that I view the Psalms is every little thing that we learn there, it's like another little foothold that we can grab onto. Is, and, and I'm thinking now, you know, imagine that we're climbing a, a rock wall, but it's not a wall, it's like an actual mountain, and we don't have ropes on. It's, it's like a life or death situation, and we need to get up that, that mountain. I would sure be hoping there would be things that I could grab onto there. And I think that that's kind of an analogy for our lives. There are dangers, spiritually speaking, all around us, and we need to keep going in our walk with God. And every little thing that we can grab onto about God, knowing who He is, will only strengthen us as we seek to go forward. So Psalm 110 gives us one of those footholds, and here's what it is. It's a promise in here that God will be victorious. I want you to think about this psalm from the perspective of the Israelites. King David is writing a psalm to the Israelites and he's saying, God will win the final battle. I imagine that meant a lot to them. Because you think about the previous 400 years of their history before King David wrote this, and it was a history with lots of ups and downs. Now on the one hand, they, were, they saw God do some miraculous things. They saw God deliver them from Egypt, the mighty miracles of the Red Sea and the Ten Plagues. They saw God defeat foreign armies so that they could go into the Promised Land. But on the other hand, there were times when they weren't so faithful and where God punished them. And part of that punishment was sometimes being routed by foreign armies. Or you think about the time of Judges, which was like a roller coaster ride for them for hundreds of years. And sometimes they followed God, but other times God sent foreign armies to rout them and, and to uh, really put them into slave labor. Now, at the, at the end of that 400-year time of Israel's existence, King David writes a psalm and he says, God will be victorious. How do you think they took that? I, I think it was meant to strengthen their faith to say, okay, okay, we may be going through some stuff here, but God's going to win in the end. So how are we to take this psalm? Well, I, like I said, it's still a prophecy for us because part of this prophecy, as we'll see later on, talks about the first coming of Christ, but part of this prophecy talks about the second coming of Christ. And we can still look ahead and know that God is in control and that he will win the final battle. Israel was supposed to praise God for the coming victory, and so are we. We're supposed to praise him. We're supposed to look ahead with joy to the second coming of Christ. That's why in Titus 2.13 it speaks of waiting for our blessed hope and it, it calls that blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why so many of our worship songs talk about heaven or about the second coming. It's good to remind our souls about what is coming. It's meant to be a foothold for us right now that as we go through the difficult stuff right now we know that God's in control. As we thank God then for his coming victory, it strengthens our faith. And, and that's again where the footholds come into place. That's what thankfulness does in our lives. It trains us. It strengthens our souls. Whatever we're going through in life, we can know that God is a solid rock for us 
and we can trust in Him and we can keep going. So let's remember to keep our focus on the Lord. Life will try to get us to focus on other things. Some things will come up and it will seem so difficult for us to keep our faith. But I think the reminder of Scripture is that God wants us to know that He, lo- he loves to be with us and to give us that strength, especially when we're weak. And praising God then is one of the best ways that I know to, to go through this time of, of strengthening our faith. That whatever we're going through, we praise God and we trust in His final victory. Okay, so that's the first way that we view this psalm, by looking at it as a psalm of worship. And I want to move on now to the second way of looking at this psalm, where we're going to look at it as a prophecy about the coming king. So that's number, point number two in your bulletin, is as a prophecy, we look forward to the coming king. Let me use an illustration here as well. There is an event that's about to happen in our world that I am guessing will dominate the news cycle. There is something that if you're a person who watches the news coming up, you will not be able to avoid this event. What am I talking about? Am I talking about the fiscal cliff discussions that are going on? No, those are important. You'll see a lot about that. Am I talking about the 2016 presidential candidates? You know, who's going to be the Democrat? Who's going to be the Republican candidate? No, we'll hear about those things. But I'm talking about something that will just dominate and you will probably get sick and tired of hearing about it. You know what I'm talking about? Prince William and Kate are having a baby. <laughs> it, it's already started. They're already chronicling the morning sickness. And I didn't, I didn't realize that morning sickness was something you had to go to the hospital for, but I guess that's, uh, that's the case right now. And we're getting all these... Do- I learned more about morning sickness, medically speaking, from reading about this than I did through living through three of them uh, with Christine. But it, you know, there are so many people in our world that are fascinated with Will and Kate. Why is that? Well, it's because Will, Prince William, is next in line to the throne. When his mom, Queen Elizabeth, passes away, he is going to be the king of England. And according to English law, his first offspring, which is this baby now, is next in, whether it's a boy or a girl, that child is next in line for the throne of England. So the whole world will be waiting with bated breath all throughout this pregnancy to meet this baby, who is going to be a king or a queen. So you see, it's, it's big news when a king is coming. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Psalm 110. It, it's, it's, talking, it's a prophecy about the coming of a king. And verse 1 is especially important in that this is one of the verses that the New Testament picks up on. And I'll just reread it for you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The verse reads kind of like an inauguration. You might have to train yourself to view it that way, but uh, that's, that's what's going on there. It's the inauguration of a king. Now, a lot of people over the centuries have tried to read this as David writing this psalm about himself, that, that David became king of Israel, and he wrote this psalm kind of to say, hey, look at me, I'm the, I'm the exalted king of Israel. But upon closer inspection, you can't view it that way, and I want to show you why that is. Actually, I'll, I'll show it to you through Jesus' word. In Matthew 22, this was a time when a bunch of people were coming up to Jesus and questioning him. They're saying, hey, are you really who you say you are? It says they were testing him. He turned the tables on them and he asked them a question using this passage. Matthew 22, 41 to 46 says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? 
For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He was quoting verse 1 from our psalm. It goes on to say in Matthew, If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus himself is saying, this wasn't David. David was talking about somebody else here. And let me show you this. It's kind of confusing, perhaps, but there's two different words for Lord in verse 1, and I want to show you what they mean. The first one, the Lord says, you might notice in your Bible that it, it might be all capital letters, and when that's the case in some translations, that's an indication that it's the divine name, Yahweh. So this is, this is talking about you know, God, the supreme being. The second Lord in here is the word for Adonai, which means master. So it's Yahweh speaking to Adonai. And if we're understanding these terms right in this psalm, it's the Father talking to the Son. And the Father is saying to the Son, then, sit at my right hand. And that position of authority on that throne, really, is what he's saying. Now, Jesus knew something here. He knew that David was writing this psalm and that it was about Adonai, the Lord, the Messiah, not about King David. So Jesus' question for the Pharisees was, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And it was a, it was a question, and the people were like, uh, I don't know. There actually is an answer for this. In, in a different context, John the Baptist actually gave the answer, and I'll, I'll just quote what John the Baptist said in 130. He wasn't answering this question, but his answer is appropriate. He said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John the Baptist was older than Jesus. Jesus was born after him. But John the Baptist says, no, 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 that person, he is long before me, existing since before the beginning of time. So that's what's going on here. King David is writing a psalm about the inauguration of King Jesus onto his throne. So Psalm 110 is about a king, but it's not just about any king. It's about the king of kings. Not even King David could live up to this psalm. Yeah, King David, he was a king, and he brought about a, a fair amount of military victory and peace to Israel. But the picture in Psalm 110 is of final victory and about a peace that only Jesus could bring about. We know that it's about final victory by looking at verses 5 to 7. The, the wording in those verses is not just about any battle. It's not just like, say, the Israelites defeating the Philistines and then you know, the Philistines regroup and come back three months later. Verses 5 to 7 are about a final victory. They echo the language of the end times language that we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's about a time when God's enemies will be finally silenced. So again, this is not King David. He couldn't do that. He couldn't silence all of God's enemies for all time. Only King Jesus could do that. And that's what's still yet to come. So that's, that's the part of this psalm that is still prophecy for us. We still look ahead to that. And, and verse 7, this is a curious verse to me. It says that this king will drink from a brook beside the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Have you ever read that verse and wondered what it means? I, I have. I don't know. Maybe some of you have too. But, but I think I found the answer today or this, this week. I think it's an allusion to Gideon. Remember there was a battle? Gideon had about 32,000 soldiers and the Midianites were coming upon them. And, and Gideon assembled this army of 32,000 people, which sounds like a pretty good-sized army. But God said, no, 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 that's too much. And God said to Gideon, let some of the people go. So Gideon said, if any of you are scared, you can go home. 
22,000 out of the 32,000 people left that day. And Gideon came back before the Lord said, okay, here we are. And God said, no, 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 still too much. And remember what happened next then? God said, take them down to the river and have them drink water. So most of them went down to the river, put their heads in the water, and started drinking. But there were 300 of them that I, you know, maybe got down on their knees and used their hands to bring the water up to their mouths, which seems like a totally insignificant thing to me. It's like, well, who cares? They're just getting a drink. But God said, those 300 men, those 300 that brought the water up to their mouths, those are the ones that I want you to bring into battle. And if you remember the rest of the story, then Gideon and those 300 men, uh, the, the fierce weapons that they brought into that battle were jars and torches and uh, trumpets to go against a huge army. But the deal was they, they surrounded the camp and they, they blew on their trumpets and they broke their jars and they shone their lights and God won a victory for them. God made it so that the, the people of Midian turned against themselves and routed themselves. So the, the picture of verse 7, I believe, is a reminder for us of God who takes care of foreign armies. God who defeats his enemies. So uh, even though the, the language is a little bit strange to us, I think it's, it's just a reminder for us, God's going to win this battle. So the picture in Psalm 110 is final victory which the King of Kings will bring about. And in verse 1, when it speaks of a king sitting down at the right hand, we need to know that that is... That is a high place of power, of prominence. In Hebrews 1, we read that God didn't give that throne to any mere mortal, or not even to an angel, but only to his son. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15:25, it talks about Jesus reigning there, and it says that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's clear both from reading this psalm and from looking at the New Testament interpretation of it, that the king spoken of here is not just a king. He's the king of kings. Now, the Israelites already had a king. They had King David, and he was pretty good at leading them. But God said, don't trust in him. Trust in the one who is yet to come, the king of kings, who God promised would come and would ultimately deliver. Now again, I've mentioned this already, but I need to make this point abundantly clear. This psalm is a prophecy, and if we think it again, it it was written in 1000 BC, and as they were looking ahead to the prophecy, they saw a coming king who would reign and be victorious and would win a final battle. Now, we stand in 2012, and we can now look back and say, okay, part of that has already happened. Jesus Christ came as a baby, and he is the king. He is now reigning. According to Hebrews 10, after his death and resurrection, he came and sat at the right hand of the Father. So he is now reigning, as it says in verse 1, Jesus Christ is reigning as Lord, as King in heaven. But yet we still look ahead as we look at verses 5 to 7, as we look at that final battle, and that is still a prophecy for us. So at Christmas time, we're, we're, again, we're, we've started our Christmas sermon series now. Did you catch that transition? We're, we're into the Christmas part. It's good for us in 2012 now to look back and to say, God, thank you for sending your king. You said you would do it. You did it. We praise you for that, God. But also today, and maybe this isn't a Christmas Eve message, but also today I think we should be looking ahead and saying, God, we thank you for what you kn- we know you will do. God makes good on his promises. 
everything that he has promised in the Bible, he will do, and we can take it to the bank. Now there's one more interesting part of Psalm 110 that I, I have to mention because the New Testament makes such a big deal of it. It's verse 4. Let me reread that for you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Have you ever asked yourself, why in the world is that in there? If you were to take that verse out of this psalm, the psalm would make complete sense. But then you, you look at this verse then in this psalm, and I had to scratch my head. I said, why is that in there? I even asked another pastor friend of mine, and I said, why is it in there? He said, well, it's, you know, it's a prophecy about, about Jesus being the priest. I said, yeah, but why? Why, why couldn't that have been in a different psalm or in a different place? I think the answer is that Jesus, uh, excuse me, that God was trying to tell us something about this king, that he wasn't just going to be any old king, that he was going to be a priest as well, and that he was going to reign forever. So as we think about Jesus as king of kings, one thing that we also need to know about him is that he is a priest forever. Now it's interesting, in Israel, there was a sharp distinction between the kings and the priests. The kings came from the tribe of Judah, good. And the priests came from the tribe of Levi. Very good. Okay. You passed that pop quiz. Let's go. You redeemed yourself from the first pop quiz today. Um, The kings and the priests came from different tribes. But now it says here in Psalm 110 that the king will be a priest forever. But not in the order of Levi, in the order of Melchizedek. So there's something going on here and we need to know who Melchizedek is. Who is this guy? Well, he's barely mentioned in the Old Testament. He kind of pops on the scene quickly and then leaves. He was a real interesting guy. Pardon? King of Salem. He was the king of Salem, which was Jerusalem. So in the time of Abraham, Abraham won a battle and he met this Melchizedek, who it says was king and priest of Jerusalem. Now this was long before God made the covenant with the kings of Israel or with the priests of Israel. So before all that ever happened, there was this guy, Melchizedek, that we don't know that much about. He was both king and priest at Salem, or Jerusalem. Now when it says in verse 4 here that, that Jesus would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, what it's saying then is that this king is qualified to be a priest as well. The New Testament makes that abundantly clear, that he came as priest of the New Covenant. Well, why is that important? Why even mention it? What does a priest do? A priest is someone who mediates between God and man. A priest offers sacrifices, and a priest leads people into worship. So that's what Jesus did for us. That's why this verse is in here, to teach us about who Jesus would be. That he offered a sacrifice that was far greater than any sacrifice that has ever been offered on the face of this earth. He offered himself as the perfect, unblemished sacrifice once-for-all sacrifice. And it says of him in in verse 4 here that he would be a priest forever. That's another reason we know that this wasn't King David. Peter was quoting this psalm in Acts 2, and he said, uh, that wasn't about David. If you want, uh, we could walk over to David's grave and we could dig it up. Dig up and you see that he's still there, or at least what's left of him is still there. This isn't about David. This is about a much higher king, King Jesus. So Psalm 110 is a picture of Jesus being declared king and priest. The question I want to ask then is how should we treat such a person? If it's true that he's king and priest, how should we treat him? 
Well, again, we know a little bit more of the story. Standing in 2012, we look back at the first coming of Christ and we see how he was treated. We see that he was killed by people who didn't want to submit to his lordship and didn't want to follow God the way that he said that he should. That's what a king does. A king is in control and people didn't want to be under his control. And a priest is someone who leads people into worship and they didn't want to worship God the way that Jesus said. So they killed him. And it's not just those Jews and those Romans 2,000 years ago. It's been everybody over the last 2,000 years who has ever lived according to our own ways and not God's ways. For Jesus to be king means that we submit to him. So I ask you, do you believe that Jesus is king? Yes, thank you, thank you. If we believe that, it should change the way we live. There's no saying, well, he's my king, but I'm just going to live my own life. You know, we, we have a president in the United States, President Barack Obama, and some of you might like him, some of you might not like him, but I would guess that very few people in our country would say, I serve him. He's, he's my master. Because that's not who Barack Obama was ever intended to be. That's who King Jesus was intended to be. And we can't just call him king and then live our own lives. Either he's your king and you give your full loyalty to him, or you deny him. Those are your two choices. Don't kid yourself and assume that there's a third choice in the middle. Either he's king or he's not. And it's the same thing with priests. Either he leads us to worship God, either we follow him and live according to the ways that he taught us, or we come up with our own plan. Now, you have to reject him if you want to come up with your own plan. That's just a you know, little problem with that plan. But it's the only two options that we have. Either he's our king and priest or he's not. And I highly want to <coughs> recommend today that you submit to him as king and you follow him as priest. He leads us into abundant life. He will win the final victory. And he is well worth our worship. The one that God exalted was rejected and killed. And so often in our day and age, he's rejected and set aside and not honored. May we be people who honor him as king and follow him as priest. So as I read Psalm 110, one of the takeaways for me is to thank God for this wonderful gift that we've been given, the King of Kings and our High Priest who lives forever. We need to follow him still today. And again, Psalm 110 is a prophecy, and it's still a prophecy for us that we look forward to what God will do, and he will win that final victory. And I tell you something else. I want to be on his side in that final battle. It doesn't go well for the people on the other side. Our king has come. He is coming again. We can take that to the bank. So let me give my conclusion here as I'm trying to look at this psalm. We've looked at it from one perspective as a psalm of worship where we thank God for what's coming and we've looked at it as a prophecy about the coming king. I want to just give my attempt now at an overall statement and this is in your bulletin here, my concluding statement. We should rejoice at what God has already done and we should wait by faith with hope for what is yet to come. I'll say it again. We should rejoice at what God has already done and we should wait by faith with hope for what is yet to come. 
At Christmas time, we should take time to look back and to thank God for what he did in sending his king. What a gift we've been given. Advent, like Dan was saying earlier, is that time for us to remember, to prepare our hearts. Yes, he's already come, but it's such a wonderful time of the year for us to remember the gift of baby Jesus, who is now our Savior and Lord. So in the hustle and bustle of this Christmas season, please take time to stop and rejoice and worship the King. But then not only do we look back and thank God for sending Jesus, but also we look forward and we thank God by faith for what will come, for His promise to take care of everything. We can have confidence that God has a plan to make everything right. Now, maybe your life is turmoil right now. Some of you might be going through some stuff where it might feel very much like God is not in control. But that's why we've been given God's word so that we can, in those moments, say, oh yeah, okay, I realize what, what it feels like and I realize that my focus may have slipped off of God and onto the circumstances around me. But when that happens, we need to take that as a reminder to take our focus directly back to God. And again, one of the quickest ways that we can do that is by praising Him and thanking Him for who He is. So if it's turmoil for you right now, maybe you just go to God and say, God, thank you that you've got this all figured out. I don't have any of it figured out, God, but thank you that you do. That'll be good for your souls. So store that up. If you're not in any sort of turmoil right now, just store that away and remind yourself of that the next time you go through something. We're to thank God for what he's already done and we're to look ahead and praise him for what he will do. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your wonderful plan. We're so grateful, God. So grateful that you are in control and that you've already told us the end and that it works so well for us who know you. So God, we just want to come before you once again and submit ourselves to King Jesus. He is our King and our Lord and we want to follow He's also our high priest who leads us into what's right, who's opened the way for us to meet with you, God. So through the blood of Christ, I pray that we would continually enter into your presence and worship you and praise you and be changed by you. But God, may we remember it's either our way or your way. And may we remember that it doesn't go well for us when it's our way. So I pray that we would again submit to you and worship you as the King of Kings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.